Well, songs, songs, uh, music in general has um, a unique impression on your brain. Where when you first, because in order for your brain to store that information, it, it doesn't just store the audio portion of it. It, it is it, it, it. All of the senses are involved, so it it makes an impression. Welcome to one more thing. Before you go, what's it like to be a budding musician at the age of eleven, playing clubs at fifteen? Acting in an iconic movie in the 80s, only to find yourself back in the music game playing clubs like the Roxy, Whiskey A Go Go, Viper. What's it like to start your own band, write and produce your own music, or be invited to be a band member of a legendary 80s band whom, ironically enough, had written and performed the theme song for the very movie you were in 30 years prior? We're going to answer those questions and more. When we talk to the man that accomplished all of that and more, I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is The Thing About a Passion for Music. My guest in this episode is Jeffrey Bryan. He's a musician, a songwriter, composer, and an actor. Jeff was born and raised in Los Angeles and a teen in the 80s, pursuing a solo music career, working on the famed Sunset Strip and beyond. He's an actor that appeared in various films and TV appearances is Jeff Fishman, including The Karate Kid and Hot Moves. He's a composer, singer, and currently he's a keyboardist for the band Survivor, of whom did the trader music for Karate Kid and the iconic Eye of the Tiger. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you. That's one, one heck of an intro. <laughs> well, I try to do it. I appreciate You've it. You've had a heck of a career. I know that uh, it's been a long career in the business. Yeah, well, you know, I've been doing this my whole life, so uh, it started pretty young in the '80s, right, right, right out of high school. So it's it's had a, a meandering uh, path for me. Did you start out as an actor, or did you start out as a musician? Well, interestingly, I've always been a musician. I actually never identified as an actor. Um, I professionally became an actor when I got roles, and I had not anticipated that. That wasn't really part of my, quote, plan. Um, so to answer your question, uh, I was a musician from day one and still am. Uh, acting was kind of a, I, I, I guess it was sort of a, a little bit of a diversion um, in the sense that it, it, it was an opportunity that it presented itself at a time when I was still kind of formulating what I wanted. And uh, I took I took advantage of those opportunities that came around. Wait, what age did you start that? Um, I was about uh, teen. When when you're talking about music, you're talking about the acting part of it, because music was very young. Music was like 11 years old. I was learning to play, uh, sing. Actually, I was a singer more than anything. That's that's really what I started doing. I wanted to be a singer, and and. Um, uh, I learned to play an instrument. I think guitar was my first instrument. I learned to play that really primarily just to accompany myself because I didn't want to constantly sing other people's songs. And so by the time I was 13, 14 years old, you know, my dad was taking me to open mic nights around the city. And, uh, you know, I, I had been playing in clubs and doing all kinds of stuff by the time I was 15. So, so you know, I, I, I considered myself a performer at that point, um, acting was acting was an absolutely unexpected turn, and that didn't show up until you know the end of high school for me. How did you get that break? I mean, were you out doing a gig? Were you doing something at one of the clubs? Similar, notice you? Yeah, 
Yeah, it is kind of like that. I, I was in a show called The Too Young for Primetime. It was either called Too Short for Primetime Players or Too Young for Primetime Players. It was a, a little show that some producers were putting on at the Roxy and another one at the Laugh Stop, which I think is what used to be called El Cabaret or whatever. It's in it's in the uh, San Fernando Valley. And then, of course, the Roxy's on Sunset. And they had these matinee shows uh, in the 80s. And obviously... And um, they're all for kids. It, it was bizarre. It, it, it was a, a matinee show, like a like a variety show. There were dancers and singers and and you know musicians and 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 stuff. And it was just kind of a, a hodgepodge of of entertainment. And the and the shows were being put on for children's birthday parties. So I guess parents would pay to have their you know their hours or two hour party. Instead of Chuck E. Cheese, they'd go to they'd go to the Roxy. <laughs> kind of strange, but um, it became sort of popular. And um, if I remember, we they uh, I think some news channels did a few seg- segments on it, and and it sort of got into the into the news cycle. And uh, next thing you know, Merv Griffin was knocking on the door to do a segment on it, and I was just one of the players in in the show, and. Uh, I was selected from uh, the Merv Griffin people to come on to Merv Griffin and, and sing a song uh, as part of their, uh, they were doing a couple weeks version of this, this show that was going on in LA. It was very popular. And um, uh, from there, uh, there was a manager that worked with some of the kids in the show that I knew, and he suggested he get me an agent. And part of the reason for that was uh, I looked extremely young for uh I was I think when I met him I was 15 or 16. So by the time I turned 18, I would still look 14 or 15 years old. I could still play that and that's, you know, that's very good for it's it's much cheaper for studios if they they don't have to get a, a minor. So I it was solely a monetary, you know, thing that this manager saw dollar signs and he figured, "Hey, this guy should be acting." So he got me lined me up with an agent and I really was like, "Well, okay, I'm not an actor, but go for it, I guess. You know, you, opportunities come and you take them. And it was entertainment. Uh, I thought it might lead to more music jobs or something at the time. I, I didn't know. Interestingly enough, though, I, I, I never really felt 100% comfortable considering my huge background in music. You know, I, I, I studied music. I trained in music. I understand music. I, acting wasn't part of my you know, wasn't really part of part of my repertoire at that age. And so it was like, okay, I'm not really sure. I didn't have a lot to fall back on if I were in trouble on the set, for example. And these were the, some of the things that would concern me. But they were like, hey, don't worry about it. You'll be fine. <laughs> so I took the job. Yeah. I got jobs. Well, that job, especially in Hollywood, that's important. They come far and few between sometimes. Yeah. Well, you know, when it comes to casting, uh, especially in the 80s, there were a lot of movies, uh, those coming to age movies like Fast Times and Ridgemont High and Porky's and movies like that. And uh, so I'm not sure acting was, you know, was high on the, you know, important list. It was just a matter of does he look the right part? You know, does he have a pulse? Wasn't wasn't trained <laughs> at Juilliard or right, right. You know. I mean, trust me these these weren't exactly uh, this wasn't Shakespeare. Um, but I, you know, they sent me out on on a lot of commercials, and I never booked one. 
Not not a single commercial because I just wasn't I wasn't into it. But they had this small theatrical department in this agency that I was assigned uh, to. And I, I kept bugging the little department that had like one or two agents in it to send me out on some movies. Because to me, that sounded a little bit more. I mean, I, I didn't want to spend my time biting into hamburgers. You know, I, I was a kid. I was young and didn't know and and just want that's not acting. If they want me to act, give me a part. So they were sending me out on movies and I, they sent me out on quite a few. And, and Karate Kid was one of the ones that I got. It wasn't the first movie that I actually was in, but. It was the first big feature film I was in. Well, in that one there, you were, the part that you had, um, you were a part of the uh, bad guys, weren't you? The, the, the game? No, no. Well, if you're talking about the Cobra Kai guys, yeah. the guys that were in the karate dojo, no. There were a group, there were two groups. If you're familiar with the film, the, the Freddy's gang, as we call them. Freddy was the kid that Daniel LaRusso met uh, at his apartment when he first... Um, got to Reseda, and the, that dude knew a bunch of other kids, but they weren't part of karate. We were all the guys on the beach and kind of, uh, it didn't really make a whole lot of sense, to be honest, and that's probably why a lot of our parts were cut and they, they didn't need it. Um, but there was a group of us, you know, there, there was um, Israel Warby, who was Freddie, and Tom Fridley, and Ken Daly, and Frankie Avalon Jr., and myself and the five of us were a group of friends that were not part of the karate group. So, um, to answer your question, no. What was it like working with Ralph Macchio? Uh, interesting. I didn't work with him enough to, to give you, um, no, none of us did really. He was John. We have to go back a little bit. John Avildsen was the director and John Avildsen was famous for Rocky one. And a lot of the people that worked in the Rocky series were the same people that worked on the Karate Kid series. So it wasn't a coincidence. There were a lot of similarities between the two organizations. And John was very, very, he kind, I call it, he was kind of like a method director. He wanted people on the set that were adversaries in the movie to continue that. So it was a very adversarial set. And Ralph in particular was sequestered into uh, a Winnebago. This is at least Karate Kid 1. It was the only movie I was involved in. And he was in in his trailer, excuse me, he was in his trailer the whole time, the whole months and months of filming. And he'd only come out, he didn't have lunch with us, with the rest of the cast. Of course, I knew everybody on the cast, but Ralph in particular, since you asked, uh, not a lot of us actually had a lot of um, downtime with him. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting how they, how they kept us all apart. They want, they didn't, John didn't want people that were uh, enemies on film to be friends at lunch before they took, started shooting, which kind of makes sense. Yeah. You get, so you get they, realistic they, they, animosity, I guess. Yeah. And, and, you know, we were all pretty young. Everybody on the set was either, you know, out of high school for a couple of years or fresh out of high school like me. So it really felt like high school on that set. Everybody, you know, the, now when they said cut and it was rap, that that would fall away. We'd, you know, we'd hang out and do other things and we'd talk and stuff. But during during the filming, it was, it was you know, you were pretty much acting the entire time you were there. And then you got out of your car, walked onto set, that's it. Those aren't your friends. Those guys will kick your ass. That guy is your friend. You could talk to him. And it was kind of like that. 
I wonder if other movies are like that. They probably are, you know, especially especially adversarial bully type movies. You know? I've heard I've heard at least from some of the other people I've spoken with, I've heard that that kind of takes place. They like to keep the animosity there. Just to, yeah. the tension there in real life because it portrays it better on film than than kind of yeah. faking I'm scared. Right, right. Kind of yeah. And so being being as young and inexperienced as I was and being a musician and not really an actor, man, it was a it was a tough, tough time for me uh, during that the filming of that because I had come from another movie called Hot Moves, which I was uh, had a much bigger part in. And um, that was a completely different kind of movie and it was very casual and a little lower budget and very uh, fun, if you will. So when I got to uh, the sets with Karate Kid, it was just, you know, it was like high school. It was really kind of awkward. It was, it was, there were some, there was a lot of tension on that set. Wow. Uh, in retrospect, it made it for a good movie, but yeah, kind of difficult for a kid, you know, for a 17 plus, almost 18 year old kid that. And no experience. Like, no one talks to me. No one will talk to me. What's going on here? Yeah, they've shunned me. I've been shunned. I know. What did I do? That's funny. The so did you give it to me? I've got to ask you this because I watched yeah. Pat Morita oh. on Happy Days, and then it was a complete Arnold. transformation from Happy Days to uh, to this particular movie. And people were going, yeah. they didn't understand whether or not you know it's like, wow, this is. This is a completely yeah. different character, but he played it, obviously played it so well. So did you get in? Well, I knew Pat Morita. Yeah. I, I, I actually see now that kind of, it's a good segue because I was explaining that there was a lot of adversarialness. Uh, is that a word? Adversarialness? We can make it There was word. a lot of that. There it is. Uh, there was a lot of that tension on the set, but Pat never really followed it. He always broke character and had so much fun. So if he happened to be standing, you know, in your vicinity, he'd talk to you and we'd have chats and he'd, he'd tell jokes. He was, he, he, uh, he is generally like, I, I would say, and I didn't know him, you know, real well, but I would say that if I had to, uh, sum him up, the character he played on, um, on Happy Days was probably more closer to his actual personality. You know, a fun-loving, really happy, everyone likes him kind of guy. And, you know, he was a comedian. And that, that, that was his, I think, default position. Uh, he struggled to get that role, too. He really wanted it. That was, they, that was, not, his, that was not their first choice. And uh, I heard that he uh, auditioned over five times. Wow. And, um, you know, it was, it was, uh, he had a stigma about him because, you know, he had only done comedy. And they really wanted... They wanted like a Bruce Lee or somebody that was, you know, real, uh, you know, immersed in the arts and, and all this. And from what I understand, he had to really sell them. But I can't imagine anyone else playing that role. He won an Oscar. I can't won imagine anybody else playing either. Yeah. It's... I, re I have fond memories of him on set. Uh, I think everybody does. And I'm not just saying that because, you know, he's gone. I, I mean it. He's, he's really he was a sweetheart of a guy. And that's probably why he had a little bit of trouble getting the role in the first place, because they were, well, will he have the depth that it needs? But apparently he does. He does. Yeah, yeah. I, I really, I followed Pat Morita in his career. I really liked him even after that in some of the things oh. that he had been in. And un, it's unfortunate um, that he, we've lost him and the reasons that we lost yeah. him, you yeah. know, but that's very unfortunate. Very unfortunate. So 
obviously you sang, uh, we talked about this, you singing on the Merv Griffin show. And so you produced music for local shows and, and so forth. At what point in your life did you start producing music? Well, I've been producing music from the very beginning. I mean, I was always writing and, you know, trying. My, my, my main objective early on, and still is, is singer-songwriter. You know, uh, I've always been extremely fascinated with the craft of songwriting and, and recording um, and creating. So, you know, singing was a means to... Uh, I mean, singing is more of a performing kind of thing, but, it, but, but I got into songwriting at a very early age to support my singing and kind of got hooked on that. So I've been producing music forever. I mean, I've always considered myself a producer in that sense. Um, it was after Karate Kid, though. See, during during uh, those those early years, I got sidetracked with acting. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just that I had sort of developed this little career of getting these little acting jobs and um, not really thinking much of it. I'm just sort of like, well, this is, you know, it's paying the bills and this is cool. But it didn't really have, I didn't really have a, uh, a goal in mind with what to do with it. And I, I, after Karate Kid, it was kind of difficult because originally Karate Kid was supposed to be a two-week part for me. Uh, that's what they negotiated. But when I got onto the set, they renegotiated the contract to stay on for the entire amount of time that they were filming for the whole, you know, the whole third and fourth, I mean, the whole fourth quarter of the year. So all through from September through January, I was, you know, contracted to Columbia Pictures for that movie. And I didn't have that much to do. And so I couldn't go out on interviews. I couldn't try to find other jobs. And it, by the time it was over, I was actually relieved because I kind of felt like, well, you know, I'm kind of released now and I can, I can do something. And I re- looked around and I realized uh, I'm not, I haven't done anything with my music in a year. And it disturbed me. I, you know, I felt like I was losing precious ground. Even at, at 18 years old, I, I kind of sensed that. And uh, so I, uh, I started bands, started you know, auditioning for bands, auditioning players, putting my own bands together, going out and playing. Um, I've been doing that since then and haven't really stopped, <laughs> you know. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the, the, the track. I mean, I, I kind of had to force myself back onto the music track. At least that's how I saw it, you know, at that time. Well, and music is your passion. I mean, obviously when you talk to me about it, I can yeah. see it in your face. I can see it in your eyes. I can, you know, I can, yeah. you exuberate music and look. Yeah. I mean, that, it's, that's all I really cared about. I, you know, and, and, and I felt a little, it's going to sound funny in retrospect because, you know, we were talking earlier before we started recording that, you know, life kind of takes you in different, different kind of paths and, you know, you got to be flexible. But at the time, I kind of felt like I was being diverted in a direction I wasn't really sure that I wanted to be in. And um, oddly enough, I was more successful in, at that age as, quote, an actor from the, just from the standpoint that they were paying me. I wasn't making any money with music, per se, but I just kind of felt like, if I don't do something about this, I, I'm never going to get back on track. And I just felt like I, I mean, you got to remember, since I was 13 years old, I had been playing in front of people. I've been, you know, performing and, and writing music and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, I felt like I took a year and a half, two years off. It kind of kind of uh, bugged me, you know. Now when you when you started playing music at that age, I mean, I... I think that you had played at the uh, the Viper, for example. How old were you when you played there? 
Well, the Viper Room and, I mean, the Viper Room, much older, obviously, you know, um, that those clubs on Sunset were bands that I had been in. I played at Club Lingerie and the China Club and Brazari's and Whiskey, all of them. Uh, but I was playing at the Roxy since I was 15, you know. Um, there were little places that I used to play, too. Um, there was Carlos and Charlie's on Sunset. No one's going to remember that, but I think it, they, that's where the... Uh, uh, the um, the uh, House of Blues was built, and now it's gone. But Carlos to Charlie's was a Mexican restaurant on the top. Above it, they had a room where they had performers, and it was kind of a famous little divey place. I, I would play there. I was probably 16 years old. Um, I, uh, I I sang... Um, was it like a Hungry Tiger. There was a, there was a, there was a series... Of, I mean, a, a, a franchise of restaurants in L.A. called The Hungry Tiger... And they used to have open mic nights, and my my dad would would drive me at night, and I was too young to do it. But they would allow me to go on if I had my dad there, and I could get on stage, sign in, do my song, and then I have to leave because it was a bar. <laughs> yeah, but that's amazing. What an opportunity for a fifteen year old. <laughs> I, I, you know, what did I know? I I just thought that's what you got to do. And I had teachers that told me, look, if you want to sing, get out there and sing. Go do it, and so I pushed my uh, parents to uh, allow me to uh, to sign up at these places. I just looked them up, and and I went out. So I mean, I, I guess what to, to answer your question, I, uh, the Viper Room and some of those other clubs, all those those uh, iconic places. Um, yeah, I played at, but not not necessarily as a, as a young teen. You know, that came later. But still, all part of an incredible journey, actually. So your parents have always been very supportive of you in, in regard to what career or what direction you wanted to take it either way. Yeah, they were always, you know, fantastically supportive. They, 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 uh, they nurtured, they allowed me to, to pursue it without, um, you know, without too many constraints. Uh, my only, I wouldn't call this a regret and it's not their fault, but I didn't have a musical family. So I think maybe that's why they were even more supportive is it was in the sense that they they uh they saw I had some talent and and thought well he discovered this on his own and they you know they 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 kind of uh, supported that but it would have been nice to have uh brothers or sisters that that or parents that that were musically inclined i, I was the only one i was kind of like the black sheep but well, you could, they were proud of their black sheep. you could also call yourself <laughs> a prodigy of the family right <laughs> yeah. you, a, who? a musical oh. prodigy of the family Oh, of the family. Yeah, right. Well, it's interestingly interesting because there was nobody in my family, extended family even, that was an, an entertainer or a musician. Uh, it, you know, I'm left-handed or I'm ambidextrous. I have blue eyes and, uh, and I can play music. And nobody in my family has those characteristics. Nobody. Well, Not even my cousin. You're so, unique. See, unique. Apparently. You're the unique member of the family. I'm, I'm, I'm unique among the fishmen. There you go. <laughs> I'm unique, but I won't tell you why. <laughs> so that's for the next show. That's for the next show. <laughs> you were signed to A and M, which is Almo Irving Publishing, as a staff writer. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, well, A and M Records had uh, in those days the the publishing companies weren't necessarily the record companies. Um, I, I, they, I don't, I don't think they were. Um, It'd be a conflict of interest if the record company was the publishing company. So they had these companies that they that they they operated with. At the time, it was called Almo Irving, 
which was later bought by Rondor. Everybody knows Rondor Music, which is a big publishing company. But back then it was Alma Irving and uh, Herb Alpert owned it many years ago, just like the A&M thing. And um, uh, that was an interesting, it didn't last very long. Uh, it was one of those very strange events where I was performing uh, with my current band at the time, a band called The Reach, which I can tell you more about later, but that was an interesting project. And, um, uh, oh no, actually what happened was it was my birthday. I remember this. There was a place called Michelli's. It was a restaurant on, uh, on Ventura Boulevard in the, in the Valley. It was kind of a famous place. A lot of, they, all the actors would get up. I mean, all the wait, waiters and waitresses would get up and sing a song. That was the big thing there. And a lot of actors and musicians hung out there. And so my friends took me there for my birthday and they had a piano and they said, get up and play piano. So I did. And I played one of my songs. And when I sat down, somebody approached me from who knows where they were sitting and threw a card on my table. It was a Records. And I was like, okay, this is great. Happy birthday. So I waited. Yeah, hell of a birthday present. So I, I waited a little while and I gave him a call a few days. And it turned out that the, the, the woman that gave me the card uh, was looking to sign uh, a staff writer to their roster. And so that's that's how that happened. Um, but it was during a very odd period in music when there hasn't, when hasn't there been an odd period in music? Uh, the, there was sort of a, an upset. Some of the companies were getting bought up by others. And at that time, Polygram Records purchased, um, purchased the publishing company and they cleaned house. They just cleaned everyone out. They basically got everyone off their roster that didn't have hit songs yet or, you know, people they didn't know. And uh, I was one of the casualties, so it didn't it didn't last very long. <laughs> didn't last very long. Vicious, vicious very business. Yeah, I was very. It was very disappointing to me because, again, just like the acting, I, I at that time I was only twenty one, twenty one maybe. It's like, yeah, I don't even want to tell you what year that was. Probably twenty one. And uh, publishing was still kind of a vague thing for me. I wasn't sure what it was exactly. Um, I was just learning. And then when I got into that and I realized that's that's the business, um, I knew what an opportunity I had lost. And it was very uh it was very difficult to uh to go through that whole um process of, of signing the contracts and, you know, and going through all the, 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 the different, you know, processes of being signed to them and then, you know, being some summarily just dropped, uh, you know, because they were purchased. I can yeah I can imagine that I've never been in that position but obviously I can understand from that perspective it just kind of takes a chunk out of your life. Yeah, um, yeah. I, it took it took the wind out of my sails for a little bit, especially and I'll add this to that. At the time, I was in a band called The Reach, which was kind of a cool band, and um, uh, they suggested that I dump the band and go it alone because they were doing you know it was back in the days of. Tiffany, remember Tiffany, and yeah. and, uh, and Britney Spears was coming pretty soon in in the nineties, and and so it was like a lot of these singer songwriters were getting signed by publishing companies. I think even Katy Perry was signed by a publishing company before she even had a, an album of her own. And so the public the publishing route was became a very popular way to get a record deal. Was you you get a publishing deal, you'd write songs, you kind of get a little bit of a track record, and then you'd build up a um, it'd be a way to develop an artist. So I kind of. I, I not only lost my band when I got dumped, but uh, I was kind of out on my own. I was I had a 
you know, I had a bunch of songs written, but that in a, you know, 25 cents didn't buy me much. So it was like, ah, oh, shit, now what? <laughs> it was tough. A tough period. I, I, from a different perspective, I know exactly how that feels. As we spoke about yeah. earlier with my, my particular predicament, it was abruptly stopped and kind of like, what do I do now? So yeah. I can empathize with you in that regard. So, but you've gone on to write music for uh, like dozens of other independent production feature films and, and your music career still continue to evolve, correct? Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't let anything really stop me. I mean, just because I wasn't, you know, quote, successful uh, in one area or another. You know, I'll tell you what, how I defined success when I was younger. It was, if I got a gig. You know, that was it. That was success for me. It was getting up on stage and performing. And if I was capable of putting a band together and putting a show together and going out and playing and displaying that or, you know, representing what I do, that to me was the success. There it is. I wasn't really, I mean, I wasn't always... I wasn't super concerned about, you know, Grammys or, 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 uh, or, you know, record deals and things like that. I just wanted to play, you know, and I wanted to be able to support myself. But more than, more importantly, to me, a success at that time, and even now, I mean, if I can continue to play and do the things that I care about, that's, that's the goal. You know, it, it, it isn't, it isn't the, uh, all that silver lining stuff that comes with it if you're lucky. Well, that's a testament to the tenacity of continuing to pursue your passion because it feels good. Yeah. And if you get a gig, yeah. that's a bonus. And, you know, I know several people that um, just they they're either in the entertainment industry in one form or another, but they're not doing it to get an Oscar. They're not doing it to to get the accolades. They're doing it because they love doing it in their entertaining yeah. people. I mean. It's, it's, it's kind of in my DNA, you know, that's the way I look at it. It's just, it's just who I am. It's what I've become. Uh, it's how I've developed as a human being. And, uh, um, you know, without jumping the, the, the gun here on, on questions, but it's kind of like this COVID lockdown situation has been very difficult. I'm sure on a lot of creative people, especially musicians that cannot go out and perform. And, uh, you know, so this is the first time in my life that I've ever, ever been, forced not to have gigs, you know, and I've n I don't know what to do, how to, how to, it's new. This is, you know, I mean, I know to get up in the morning and, and work on material that I'm writing and I I've done that for years, but it always was paired with the reward of performing. <laughs> That's been removed. That's a very interesting aspect. I think that yeah, we should probably explore that a little bit more, how you as an entertainer, yeah. Um, how that affects you as an entertainer. I know they shut down film yeah. projects, they shut down television projects, and and people don't think about the fact that um, concerts are being shut down as well. And those kind of type of venues are are not allowed to present entertainers. So from that perspective, um, tell me your journey with that. I mean, how are you dealing with it? How yeah. do you cope with it? Well. Let's first uh, let me let me uh, preface it by saying that you know, fortunately, my wife and I were not sick. Um, you know, we're we're pretty we're okay, uh, and my family's okay, so we're good. And there's a lot of people out there that have not been so good. You know, some people have gotten sick. Some some obviously have died. Some people are uh, stuck with people that they don't want to be stuck with during this period, etc. I could go on and on. 
people have it worse than I do. But when it comes to your vocation and, um, you know, other people maybe that aren't entertainers, uh, then maybe they can work from home or maybe they can, you know, find other means to do whatever it is that they did. Uh, it's a little difficult for uh, a working musician that depended on the stage for the lion's share of what they do, you know. And so when you ask me how I'm coping with it, um, I'm writing more, you know, I'm, 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 I'm making little videos, I'm doing podcasts, I'm doing anything I can do that, that kind of keep my mind off the fact that my calendar is, is woefully empty. And, uh, you know, I, I, this was going to be an exceptionally good year for me in the sense of, you know, Survivor, which we haven't gotten to, but Survivor was, you know, has been on, I've been touring with them for the last few years. We had a whole itinerary set this year gone. And, um, I am in other bands too that, that travel almost as much as they do. And those are obviously off the table for now. So, um, to ask how I'm coping with it, I, I, I I've gone through different stages. I've I've been like, well, you know, this will be okay. It'll be a few months. And now I'm at a point where it's like I'm starting to get a little grouchy, you know, because it's clearly not going to be a few months. And um, we're into this, what, six, seven months now. I don't see an end to it this year. And it's, I don't know how else to describe it, but it's it's got to be not different than other musicians. It's got, I, speak, I think I speak for them. It's extremely painful. Um, I, I understand. Um, I do. I've been lucky enough because I, I'm retired, but I obviously have a podcast, so I get to talk to people from this perspective. My wife was lucky enough to work from home, um, so she's able to, and she continues to work from home at the present time, but uh, our three kids uh, all lost their jobs because of this, so they, they've yeah. been off work since uh, March. Our youngest one finally just got rehired recently, so which was a, you know, a positive thing for us, but we had to move yeah. her. 2,000 miles in order to take a job. Wow. So, you know, that's... What does been, she do? May I ask? What kind of uh, job? What she, kind of work is it? She's a mark, digital media marketing specialist. Oh, okay. So that's what she does. She does SDO yeah. and marketing and... Yeah, that's too bad she couldn't do that from her current position because it seems like that's a lot of computer... It It is a lot of computer stuff, but unfortunately, um, those type of positions work in a team. So uh, this company that did that hire sense. her, they want her there because it's a it's a collaborative effort between several team members. Mm -hmm. When you create the marketing plan for one of their products and and so forth, so yeah, I mean they synergize. Uh, so it makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So we had to move her nineteen hundred miles, which is wow. which was amazing. It was it was uh, interesting. We'll just call it interesting. Yeah. Um, because of my situation, I think. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, interrupt no, go you. ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, uh, you know, to, to, to continue with the theme that we had started earlier a little bit is um, I think a lot of lives are going to be forever altered uh, due to this situation in ways that you can't really quantify right now. You know, um, I, I, for one, don't know what the state of the music industry will be in when we emerge from this. If we ever emerge from it, it might be a gradual, you know, we may not just wake up. It might just actually be a very slow rise. But whatever happens, I don't know if any of us, I, I, let's put it this way, over, over a year ago, nobody knew that they would be doing what they're doing today. And you could say that for other times in life, but not 
one that is so this this one is is affects the whole planet and so it's it's this is this is unprecedented it is i agree with you 100% um you so you're with survivor right now but you said you also are with some other groups Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll kind of get into that here in a few minutes, but sure. you, you have you guys considered doing something similar to what um, I think Garth Brooks did it? And I don't mean a- like the drive-in theater stuff. Yeah. And, well, um, if you're talking about if you're talking about Survivor, uh, I, 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 you know, I'm, 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 uh, I don't have much control over what Survivor does. <laughs> you right. know? I'm basically here's your plane ticket show up. You know. Um, uh, so, but, but I can tell you that Survivor is probably going to, is taking the time to regenerate, so to speak. And, uh, no, they're not looking at that. I, I don't know that, that they won't do that in the future. It depends on, uh, you know, the state of the music business and if that becomes more commonplace among, among their peers and, and whatnot. But at the moment, no, with respect to the other bands I'm in, um, we have considered that, and in, in, it's very strange right now. Uh, it's hard to, it's like herding cats at the moment. It's, it's, you know, to get anyone to commit to do anything, there's just, it's just very foggy in, in my, at least with respect to the people I know. And, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that there's a lot of uncertainty as to uh, some people feel less comfortable getting together because of because of the fact there's no treatment and what if they get it and what if they you know they, they give it to a sick parent or whatever um so there's 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 a lot of uh anxiety associated with it so <clears throat> um Garth Brooks is in a unique position where uh money is really no object <laughs> you know <laughs> and uh That's if he funny. wants to do it in in such a way that that uh that makes sense for him and his crew he can afford to do that um, so he's, he's sort of an, an outlier, uh, and, and rightly so. I mean, he's deserved that and his career is, is amazing. Um, but with respect to, I think most normal folks in terms of just regular musicians, uh, it's, it's pretty spotty. It, there's been a few pop-ups here where that might happen. And as the day, as the date approaches, it falls off or gets canceled or somebody pulls out either the venue owner either gets cold feet or there's not, or they don't know how they're going to monetize it or, you know, uh, the streaming situation, huh? Is it too many unknowns? Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's, that's probably in a nutshell right there. There's just too many people. I mean, too many variables that can't be nailed down and that sounds good on paper. And uh, I mean, when you're talking about it, but you put it on paper, it suddenly looks a little foggy. It's hard well, to write it down, you know. On a, on a positive note, tell me about your journey with Survivor. Survivor is was is has been a thrill. Obviously, you know. Um, well, I you know, for me, it has been a thrill. It's been an amazing journey with them. Uh, I guess we can go back to the beginning. Uh, interesting thing is, uh, you know, during my early acting days, Karate Kid, uh, Survivor was, um, you know, they had Eye of the Tiger, obviously, with Rocky Three. And Burning Heart with Rocky IV, they were a pretty well-known band, I would say, in the early '80s, and uh, with some monster hits. But it wasn't surprising that they were uh, that they did the theme song to uh, Karate Kid. They did the song "Moment of Truth," 
and it wasn't surprising because it was this Jerry Weintraub who produced uh, the Rocky series, also produced Karate Kid, and Scotty Brothers Records were friends with with Sylvester Stallone and all those people. So it's the same record company that Survivor was signed to. So a lot of the people that were working on that whole um, Rocky institution were brought into the Karate Kid. So it really wasn't surprising that you know a lot of these bands were crossing over. They were trying to um, make lightning strike three times or four times, you know, they were hoping that Karate Kid would have sort of a, a Rocky vibe to it anyway. So it, they, they, they look like coincidences, but they weren't. But I didn't know Survivor in the 80s. I just knew who they were, obviously. And, uh, you know, I had records and I had my favorite artists and they were among uh, records that I had. But that was about it. And then uh, 30-some years later, I get an email. <laughs> you want to join the band? <laughs> And I'm like, this has got to be a joke. Um, so uh, I I said no. I mean, yes, uh, of course. And uh, so I checked them out. I checked that. I checked out that email is what I meant. And then they checked me out. Um, and that's and and so uh, what, what's interesting is that I had not even put that together until after I had joined the band and uh, realized that I'm not. They're not only did the theme song for the movie I was in in the 80s, but I'm in their trailer for the advertisement of the movie, which was also advertising the song Moment of Truth. And I'm only in the I'm in the I'm sorry, music video. I'm only in the music video by virtue of being in the movie because they used outtakes from the movie in the and I mean, just it's just so crazy. But did they know know that? I did explain. They didn't know that. No. I mean, they they didn't care at the time, and then I brought it to their attention, and they thought that was cool, but nobody really even thought about it. I mean, it wasn't something... Now, that was a true coincidence. That was pretty cool, Unlike Unlike them being part of Karate Kid was not a coincidence. Me being a part of Survivor was a complete weird twist of fate. Uh, And and just... It's meant to be. I don't... I don't know what that really means, meant to be, but I, I know that that I know what you're. I know the spirit in which you mean it, and 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 it, it's interesting because I never really, I never really went that far away from uh, from Survivor, even though I didn't know who they were. I, they we had sort of passed two ships passing in the night for years. Uh, different things that had happened, you know, different recording studios that I was involved with, and they they knew the same people. Um, there was a recording studio called Rumbo Recorders, which was in Canoga Park, where, where um, and they had been working on um, uh, When Seconds Count, I think, at Rumbo. And Daryl Dragon used to own uh, Rumbo before he obviously sold it, and then now he's passed away, unfortunately. Daryl Dragon was Captain and Tennille. He was the, the captain and Captain Tennille. Great keyboard player, amazing guy. And I w- told you about The Reach earlier, that band I was in before I got the uh, publishing deal. And that band, uh, the guitar player, Patrick Bolin, was with Pure Prairie League and toured with Tim Carnes and Kenny Rogers and various people. And he knew Daryl Drag. And uh, he liked our, our stuff and let me record, let us, my band, record our demos at this world-class recording studio. And um, so who knows? I may have been going out the door when Tavira was coming in. You know, I... I never met them, but it, uh, and then another weird thing was after I had started to rehearse with them when I first met them, Survivor we're talking about, uh, it was, uh, I was playing some of the parts and, uh, 
Frankie Sullivan, the guitar player, he uh, um, reminded me that, you know who played that part? Daryl Dragon. So, I mean, it's people I had known, and, and, and it's just interesting connections. I mean, nobody really cares, but they're they're interesting to me. I think they're they're strange, you know? Hey, small world. Small world connections like that really mean a lot. Yeah, so there might be something to that thing, you know. To, there's there's some there's some energy there or something that uh, you know um, it's kind of full circle for me, you know. Well, I yeah, I like that. I appreciate that. That's I think that our journeys. My wife said our journeys are preset. That we go up and we decide what we want to do in this life, and um, I some I agree with that for the most part because I didn't. I mean, I get hit by a car, as I told you earlier. I didn't really want that. <laughs> it just kind of happened the way it did. I don't think I would have sat up there and went, I think I'm going to get hit by a car in my next life, and let's see what happens out of that. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, well, I, you know, oh, go ahead. Don't say, but I believe, I believe that, that somehow within certain energies out there that we all have a connection in, in some form yeah. or another, especially... Like the, you, you're a musician and you're an entertainer, so you love like people, like minds, you know, yeah. like like passions. You all have the same sure. passion. You all have the same drive. That um, that energy will meet at some point in time. It, it, you might be right. Uh, what's interesting is that, I mean, it wasn't shocking that I'm playing with uh, a national act. I mean, I was looking to. But what is shocking is that it could have been anybody. And it was a band that, kind of shares a history that I, a similar, obviously they had a very different history, but my point is, is that we, we shared moments in time together and that you can't plan. That's just, that's just crazy. That's just life, I guess. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Good life though. See, that, that makes life, that, 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 that makes life interesting. Yeah. yeah makes life interesting. The, you know, it, there's not a lot of moments like that in life, but I, I don't think there are. I mean, some people may have more than others, but it's the fact that those happen that we live for, you know, yes. we think about and we hope that there'll be more and, and others, you know, um, I guess it's called hope. I don't know. <laughs> hope is good, especially in this day hope and age. And, and serendipitous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can try to say that word serendipitous. <laughs> takes me a second. You did pretty good. So you... You told me earlier that you had uh, you played with some other bands as yeah. well. So you do this concurrently? Yeah, I do. Um, obviously, uh, the priority is, is Survivor's itinerary, and I work around that. Um, but I'm in another band called the KTEL All-Stars, for example. Uh, they're, they're a band. They're kind of a labor of love situation where uh, we play songs from 1970, 1979, AM hits, and we recreate them like to a T, very detailed. And I sing a lot in that show. And everybody in the band is singers, so it's really strong vocally. And that band actually tours. Or we go around the country, and you know, uh, we uh, we play quite a bit. Um, so that that's sort of a a fun project that I have. And and you know, it's it's part of the way that I I work. That's part of my working life. You know, uh, so. Did you help form this band? Yes, yeah, I'm. I'm exactly. It, it's uh, it's sort of a like I said, a labor of love for me. It's I just love. It. I get to use my some of my vintage instruments, you know, uh, the Rhodes and the Wurlitzer, and uh, I get to bring that as as 
you know, provided the, the venue can, can uh, handle it. Um, you know, cause they're, they're big and heavy. Um, but yeah, it gives me an opportunity to kind of enjoy some of the, the reason why I, I, I wanted to get into songwriting because those songs to me are the golden age of songwriting, the late seventies. Do you ever watch the, um, the program Songland? No. Have you heard of it? Uh-uh. Should uh, I have? Uh, <laughs> it actually, sounds like I should. <laughs> you know, it's amazing because if it, it's on, and obviously they don't know that I'm even promoting what, what? or prompting it, but um, I believe it's on NBC and it uh, has four producers. Yeah. And uh, what they do is they have three producers. Let me see, one, two, one, two, three, three producers. And then they bring on every week, they bring on uh, somebody looking for music whether, you know, whoever it may be. Oh, and they pitch songs to them, right? And, and what they do is they pitch songs to these producers and these three producers cool have been, you know, they've got credits that are 10 pages, 15, 20 pages long yeah. with how they yeah. produce it. So they have four or five singers that come in and composers. Then most of them, they sing, but some of them are really good. Some of them really are just writers and they kind of wing it when they're singing, which is fine because they bring somebody in to sing it yeah. for them but they pitch these songs and then they tweak them and then you get to watch from your couch the whole process of how they pick it how they tweak it they they narrow it down to work with three writers out of think five and those three writers will work with the composer producers and they'll re rework the song to what the artist wants and then they come back and they they pitch the new version and then that person will then pick the song mm. that they want to put on their label interesting, interesting idea yeah put in their album it's really mm. cool to watch the the my wife and i are mesmerized by the process of, yeah. of creating a song i didn't know that show existed I, I i don't i don't have nbc or i don't we don't i don't i just have netflix <laughs> i just have netflix <laughs> it may be on netflix you might you might look i'll have to check it out what's it called songland songland you know s-o-n-g-l-a-n-d songland one songland word. yeah they also have a podcast yeah. so if you listen to any podcast i gotta check that out yeah, yeah. check it out it's really sounds, sounds, yeah oh it's amazing to watch the process i mean i have so much respect for people like you that create a song from scratch and that can take something and make something that tells a story or touches our yeah. hearts or yeah. makes us laugh, cry, right. remember. Put this, in, in three minutes. In three minutes. Right. <laughs> exactly. And right. put you in, how, how many times have we listened to a song that goes, oh, I remember that. I was doing this. Sure. Well, songs, songs, uh, music in general has um, a unique impression on your brain where when you first, because in order for your brain to store that information, it, it doesn't just store the audio portion of it. It, it is, it, 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 all of the senses are involved. So it, it makes an impression. And that's why when if you haven't heard a song in 20 years and it comes on, you rem exactly you remember the smell, you remember where you were and it's so powerful and music is the key to opening that door. It's amazing. Well, it's a, and it's a universal language. That's yeah. That's ultimately what I'm. Yeah, I, I think your brain just just knows what to do with that. It knows it. It makes a great imprint, and so uh, um, it's really important. And the the you process know, of, you compose. So can you can what gives you your inspiration to keep composing? To keep composing, or, or, that's it's. <laughs> Because I have different inspirations for different reasons, you know. Um, 
if you're asking me, you know, if I'm if I'm being contracted to do something, you know, um, it's my job to be inspired, you know, to give to give whoever is, you know, on the other receiving end of it what they're asking for. And that's a different kind of work than writing for myself or writing for freely writing, you know. Um, so I'm not sure, you, you know, if, if you're asking me what inspires me just to write music in general. That would be it. Uh, yeah. Oh. Honestly, it's it's probably more of a selfish thing than anything else, and not not selfish like a negative connotation, but just in the sense that um, it's way I express myself. You know, it's it's a way for me to um, to uh, to feel like I'm alive. You know, I, the, much much in the way I'm sure somebody that's writing a book or a painting or or whatever, it's just sort of a um, it's an outlet. You know. Do you think it's, it's a, a learned process some... or is it a natural process or a combination of both? Um, it, it's probably a combination. It depends what it is. I mean, I'm, if I'm writing for myself, like right now I'm working because of this situation we're in, I've decided to, to spend some time and go back and re-record and re-finish and rewrite some old material that I hadn't got around to. And I'm, I don't really have a major goal in, in, for the end of the project. It's just I want to finish it. I want, it's something I want to do. And, um, so the songs, uh, when I'm writing for myself, uh, I tend to write a lot slower, a lot more methodically because there's no time frame involved in it. And if I want to change something, I change it. Uh, there's no deadline, you know, there's no, there's nothing on the end of that that needs my urgency. So in that sense, I have to discipline myself to sit down and, and write. I tend to do better when I have urgency or when there's, <laughs> there's someone knocking on my door. <laughs> I don't know why, but, um, I tend to need that pressure. You know, Sometimes we work better under pressure than we do. Yeah. Relaxed well, and... you know, I, I think it comes back for me. It comes back down to an audience. I know I have an audience to sing for. I know I have an audience to perform for on that date. So I know how to prepare for that. And it's no different with writing. I, okay. Well, in this case, this this job needs to get done, and now I have an audience. When it's for me, it's it's a different kind of inspiration. It comes from a. It's probably I probably write better music when I, in, in the end for me, uh, if I if I could say that for myself because I'm not, um, you know, I'm I'm definitely a little, you know, trying a little harder to to not just get it done. I, I'm I'm kind of there's no there's no end. So may, maybe it be maybe it's a little bit more uh, emotional pack emotion packed because of that perhaps I don't know it depends sometimes you get inspired and it just comes right out. What kind of advice would you give others coming into the industry? Other musicians or mm -hmm. just entertaining in general? Musicians. I yeah, I think uh, I think that the, the music business, or I should say, let's let's separate the music business from the business of music, which is actual creating of music. If you're getting, if you're new to creating music and you see that as something, as something you want to pursue as a, either a job or, or, or a long time, a long, you know, lifetime passion. Um, I think, I think the way that we have create the way that we create period, the way we create, whether it's, you know, books or, or music is different in this age than it was say 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Um, especially, and there's no, no other place that's like that than there, especially in music, because music where we have so many tools at our, 
at our fingertips now with with our uh, electronics and software and and so the 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 pressure to learn how to play an instrument is not so great anymore and i think that's sad a little bit and and i'm not trying to be judgy or too judgmental i'm basically just saying that in in times past if you wanted to record a piano or a guitar or your voice you had to have some sense of accuracy and proficiency with it. Otherwise, you were going to spend too much time or money in the studio and it wasn't going to come out. So you had to have, you had to develop those skills. And in doing that, you inadvertently learned how to be a better musician and, and you learned how to be a better songwriter. It just, it's just natural when you understand the, the instrument better. Nowadays, the, the, um, the focus isn't so much on music instruments as much as it is on the final product. So we're still creating a lot of artwork, a lot of it. But I wouldn't say we're, I would say we're creating a lot of creators nowadays and not so many musicians. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Obviously, if you put some chords together and you have a program that helps you and people buy it, I guess you're successful. And, and you know, artwork is artwork. And uh, there is no right or wrong. But I think that if I were to give someone advice, I think you can't go wrong by learning how to play an instrument, at least proficiently. Um, you know, you know, you don't virtuoso or some crazy, you know, classical. You don't necessarily need that to communicate. But there should be a good understanding of 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 an an instrument. I I just think that 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 would be some some advice. Just learn an instrument. Learn how, understand how it works, at least. Uh, you know, because there's a lot of guys, a lot of people that are you know in home studios that aren't keyboard players, and they just hit a button and it plays a whole bunch of chords for them. You know. <laughs> yeah, and that's too bad, really, because music is a combination of. Um... Oh, many things. I'm not a composition artist myself. I've not created music myself, but I am a lover of music. So I listen to yeah. I listen to not just the words, but the melody and the sound and the mix of the sound. And yeah. can, you can always tell when it's real and when it's not. Yeah, or or when it's coming from a real place. I think it's exactly. even you know, more important because, I mean, the medium in which you're communicating is not as important as what you're communicating. And I think with technology, some of that is forgotten because the technology, you can get so caught up in going down the rabbit hole of, you know, different sounds and, you know, a million different kinds of instruments you can throw on things and how you want to present it. And the computer can be a great time waster. You know, uh, and you might at the end, you know, develop a piece of music that uh, that may or may not be be uh, as good as it would have been had you um, approached it from a little bit more organic point of view first. I always sit down with a piano or a guitar and a little, you know, my little phone tape recorder and put it in, in, and work on a piece. And then if it feels like it has some something to it. I don't even take it to the computer at that point. I still try to flesh it out a little bit more. And then once I feel like I have a a, 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 a piece that I can do something with, then I sit down at the computer and start working it out, you know, recording it piece by piece. But um, it's got to start with a good idea. You know, it's got to start from something real. 
I respect that. Yeah, I respect that. I really do. What's your next move? <laughs> uh, feels like Groundhog Day for me. <laughs> My next move. Well, I'm not going to give up, obviously, on performing. Uh, I'm hoping, and I have to use the word hope here because I don't know, but I'm hoping that uh, we get a handle on this this crazy uh, virus and um, there's some treatments that come along so people feel a little bit more less anxiety about getting together. So uh, none of the things that I was doing prior to March this year have gone away. They're just kind of in hibernation. So I'm hoping that that continues. In the meantime, uh, next move-wise, I'm working on new songs. I'm, I'm con- continually writing and uh, constantly recording and, and just, uh, you know, doing my best to, to stay above water and, uh, and, and sanin, insane while I'm doing it, you know? Aren't we all? And, Art, I mean, I, I, you know, I talk to a lot of musicians. I have a lot of friends here that, that are in similar situations. And uh, some are worse than others because some don't have recording capabilities. They're just players, you know, great players, but they haven't really set up a studio in their house. They don't know what to do. Um, fortunately with me, I can kind of go inward and, and go back to, you know, kind of, kind of the drawing board and, and record and, and perform at home. Um, but a lot of us are feeling the same thing when you ask that question. I don't know how many musicians you've talked to in your podcast, but I'm sure that they will be, have similar answers as to, they'll just look completely perplexed to you as what the next move is because nobody seems to know. I think that's the scariest part of it all. I mean, life is all about being unknown, but, you know, the unknowns, but this is truly in your face every day. We don't know. We don't know what we're going to do. It's epic. I mean, it's just epic. Yeah. It is something that's unfathomable. Even a year ago, like you'd said earlier, something that we never expected or never thought of that it would even go on this long. So I was literally, I was literally uh, had my bags packed and out the door in March, I can't even think, second or third week in March, uh, or the second week in March, I was going, uh, we were, where I was heading to Chicago for rehearsals for Survivor for the year. And, uh, I got the call, don't come, where well, you're not, you can't go. And, and that's, my bag is still sitting at the door. I'm like a dog waiting for the owner to come home. <laughs> 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 and I think that's the kind of feeling most musicians have right now. They're just sitting there going, okay, now what? I mean, it, it, I, but, I know, like I said, a lot of people are, are affected by this negatively in lots of worse ways than probably I am. But I don't think a lot of people think about the working musicians and the crews that support them and all of the rest of people in the music business that depended upon those shows. I mean, everybody just sitting around picking their nose, you know, or, or trying to figure out what to do next. So what that next move is, is very, very difficult to answer. Very devastating. Um, I know you're composing and you're, you're still performing, like you said, at home. How can somebody watch or listen to what you have done, what your music, your work? Um, the best place to find me is on my website, uh, sort of a central point of everything. It is uh, Jeffrey Bryan Music, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-B-R-Y-A-N Music, the word music, dot com. And um, all my social, you know, the Facebook and YouTube and everything, you can get there from there. Plus, I have a bunch of videos I put up there and some of my recent work and a little bit about me. That's probably the best way. And it's always up and it works. 
Okay. <laughs> I, I will put that in the show notes and make sure everybody has a link Thank to you. it so they know where to go to. Any last words of wisdom? Uh, other than, you know, uh, wisdom. Hmm. Lately, it's been, like you said, the next move situation is, is uh, I think I think we're all sort of, it's interesting that everybody now is sort of in a wait and see kind of kind of feeling, even if, and I'm not just talking about musicians, we're all sort of trying to figure out what this world is going to be like. And I think that the last thing I'll say is to, to this point is that, you know, um, when there are uh, pandemics and issues like this, and sometimes they're, they're, uh, you know, isolated to certain areas or whatever, but it's a, it's a global problem. And what's interesting about this one is that it's keeping people away from each other, from socializing. And um, that is something unexpected, unexpectedly bad for humans. <laughs> you know? And, and um, I think that, you know, when there is a little less anxiety about getting back together, I think you're going to see an enormous amount of uh, creative creativity. A lot of great things are going to come out of this because out of adversity, there is always the opposite, you know. And um, so I'm, I'm a little concerned now, but I think people are starting to realize just how important it is that we rely on each other. I don't think that was it's taken for granted. And, I, and now that it's been taken away, so to speak, we realize we almost can't survive without it, the social aspect of who we are. I don't I, know if that made sense. But. It did make a lot of sense. I agree 100% with you. It's um, Personal contact has kind of gone away. People, you don't hug anymore. You don't shake hands anymore. Yeah. Well, it, we took it for granted. Took it for granted. Which, which is understandable. I mean, it's the one thing you're not expecting to, to lose. But when you're isolated like this, as a society, like I said, small groups, you know, maybe little tribes or, or, or areas, you know, that might be away from the main. But when you're talking about an entire species of having to think twice about covering their mouth or maintaining a distance and not shaking, etc., um, that really kind of cuts right into who we are as a species. And it's going to, um, you know, we're going to internalize that differently than, than you would if it were just uh, a different kind of contaminant, you know, if it wasn't airborne, perhaps. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to take its toll on us. Yeah, and unfortunately, like you had said earlier, the impact of it, this is going to be long. Unfortunately, the... the even after yeah. we finally get control of it, there's still going to be an impact that's going to affect us all for quite some time, I believe. I Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, collateral mental damage from this as a society. I think we're all suffering. I think everyone has to figure out a way to feel, um, to feel uh, connected. And um, this, is, this is really uh, driving some people batty. Well, one way yeah. we can make it a little bit better is to drive people to your website so they can listen to your music. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And your yes. videos. Come on down. Jeff, thank you very much. It's been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you coming on board and sharing your journey with me and having a conversation. Ah, I've enjoyed it. It's, it's, it's always fun with, with, a, with a, a conversation that's, you know, free. You know, we just talk, talk with what, what... Yeah, exactly. So... 
quite welcome. That's all for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you'll love the new content, the new guest, and the new format. We appreciate you joining in on the conversation. Please feel free to email me with your thoughts about what you liked on the episode and what you didn't like about the episode. Email me at beforeyougopodcast at gmail.com. I'll put a link in the show notes for you. And we'll discuss it on Thursday during the Over the Teacup session. Be sure to join us next Tuesday when we have a conversation with Christy Sumner of Soul Sisters Paranormal and we learn what it's like to hunt ghosts. And don't forget to check out the One More Thing Before You Go Over the Teacup session on Thursday. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go, have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.